and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home I ran up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me, and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. Before we get to today's guest, I just want to thank you all for continuing to listen, continuing to share these episodes on your social media. We'd love it if you continue to do so. Please share this conversation on social. It can be on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever it is that you're social. It really does help us expand our reach. We have had over 20,000 downloads uh, this year, and that is in large part thanks to people sharing these conversations. So please continue to do that. It really means the world to us, and it's making a difference. So thank you. Also, feel free to go to our Patreon homepage. It's patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you can give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month to help support the show. We're not going the advertising route. We tried it for a little bit. We're really going with a subscription model. So if you can go over there and help support the show, it really helps us as we continue to make this podcast as strong as possible. Now, before we get to today's guest, I just want to give a shout out to Shannon Scoville. Shannon is somebody who went to American University, which is one of the athletic departments that I work with. And she actually wrote for the school newspaper and was somebody who interviewed me at one point. And Shannon is just a really bright, hardworking young woman, and she's going to take over the world one day. So keep an eye out for Shannon and check her out on social media. But Shannon listens to the uh, show and she says that she enjoys it. And she told me, Brian, I got somebody who'd be great for your show. So she introduced me to Roman Baca, who is today's guest on the podcast. Roman is a classically trained ballet dancer and choreographer. And I've always been really interested in in dancers and performers of the arts and also choreographers. So we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty as far as the mindset of a dancer and a choreographer. But in 2001, Roman recognized his desire to defend the vulnerable. He really will talk about the desire to do good and help people. So he took a hiatus from his dance and enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. He served as a machine gunner and a fire team leader, and we'll do a lot of conversations and talking about leadership, and he served in Fallujah, Iraq during the Iraq War. Now, after the war, he returned back to dance and co-founded Exit 12 Dance Company, which tells veteran stories choreographically to increase cross-cultural understanding and heal divisions. He has choreographed and championed dance works that explore the military veteran experience and the impact of war on civilians and families. 
He has also presented his work at the first and fourth national summits for the National Initiative for Arts and Health in the Military, the Mayo Clinic's Humanities and Healthcare Symposium. He has a great TEDx from TEDx San Antonio that I highly recommend you check out. He's spoken at TED at New York City and Lincoln Center's Veteran Home Show. So he's an amazing speaker, and I know you're going to love hearing from him today. He also has led choreographic workshops at schools, universities, and veteran centers to inspire military veterans, victims of war, and civilians through the power of dance. He is currently pursuing an MFA in choreography at the Trinity Laban Conservatory of Music and Dance in London. His research at Trinity is twofold. One, it's to expand his practice and solidify his voice as a choreographer and to research choreographically the psychosomatic connection in soldiers that is the result of the embodiment of military training. As part of his studies, He is collaborating with all kinds of different people, military veterans, dancers, musicians, and artists. He also researches and volunteers with London-based charitable organizations to connect military veterans to the performing arts. He's a Fulbright scholar, which is how him and Shannon got connected. So without further ado, I'm so excited to share Roman Baca. Roman so excited to chat with you today. We were connected by Shannon, and Shannon is a a fan of the show, but Shannon's also a rock star athlete and student. Uh, I met Shannon when she was a runner at American University and also a writer in the school newspaper, and she actually interviewed me for a couple of articles that they were doing on, on sports psychology at American University. So uh, it's amazing to see people that um, our students become teachers. And I think before we started talking, I was telling uh, you that or before we fired up uh, the recording, I was telling you that Shannon uh, was presenting at a conference that I was invited to go to. And unfortunately, I didn't get to see Shannon in action. But for those that know Shannon, know, know that she's a rock star and a hard worker and big dreams. I think she's a Fulbright scholar uh, over in England, uh, somebody who's doing way more impressive things than I am doing with my life. But I just want to thank Shannon for connecting the two of us. Um, and hopefully we'll... we'll We'll try to do her justice in that we are connected by her. Uh, where I'd love to start with you is really get a sense of what life was like for you as a kid and really get a sense of what you were like as a child. And I know you've got a lot of layers to the type of person you are and who you are. And I don't think we're going to be able to put you in one bucket. So I'm excited to chat about that. But I'd love to find out what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah, uh, childhood was interesting. Um, I, I was born and grew up in New Mexico. Uh, this beautiful, vibrant, desert-esque uh, valley surrounded with mountains. Uh, very strong family uh, connections, rich culture. And I think um, one of the things that was really pivotal, pivotal in my childhood was my mother got um, pregnant and married very young and also divorced very young. So I, she was a young mother raising uh, a young kid and my sister. And because of it, we traveled a lot. Um, she got remarried. We ended up relocating to Washington State, right outside of Seattle in a place called uh, Tacoma. And then we moved to a place called Spanaway. And then we moved to a place called um, Gig Harbor. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is it, because our family connections were so strong in New Mexico, we found connections that augmented those 
when we moved and our community and uh, our family community broadened and strengthened when we moved to Washington state. Uh, as a kid, I think I was quirky. Um, you know, it's hard to look back and kind of make those judgments now, but, uh, I think the, the picture of me when I, I, that I think of often is, is me in high school, uh, trying to connect with everyone, not really having a click if you would, but talking to as many people as I can, um, wearing really weird stuff to school. It, it would be the winter and I'd be wearing shorts and, and, a, like a, uh, a patterned t-shirt. And I wasn't, I don't think I was on one path. I, I was interested in engineering. I was interested in, in uh, TV and film and technology. Uh, I did a little bit of, um, like, they, they, when I was in high school, they did this thing where they filmed the morning announcements. And I remember getting interested in that and, and doing it as kind of a news variety show. And my friends and I would go film crazy stuff on the weekends and then, and then play it. Um, where, during the show when I was young, but anyway, sorry. So the one person that you didn't mention, I don't think you mentioned dad. Yeah. Uh, where, where was dad and all this? And what was that relationship? Yeah. Like? So my mom and my dad got, uh, divorced when I was young. I would fly back to see my father, uh, when we moved to Washington state, uh, holidays and, and summers. And I, I think our relationship was kind of rocky. Um, more so because I was quirky, I was impetuous. Um, and so I, I think my, and my father's relationship has been kind of up and down for many, many, many years. And what's your relationship like with mom? Uh, great. My mother is, uh, an inspiration of mine. Um, I think she's dealt with a lot of challenges over her life and I've, seen her go through those challenges. Um, I remember in high school, she was working at a job and part of working at that job required her to learn Microsoft. It was when Microsoft was first introduced and Microsoft Windows. And she, I remember her studying a book on Microsoft Windows. And for some reason, she needed to learn fractions and she hadn't learned fractions and I remember sitting down with her and going over um, the concept of fractions, how to add, subtract, divide. And I was a horrible teacher back then because um, I was a high school student. So I don't think I made any positive impact. But what, what I gained from that is how hard my mother worked to be upwardly mobile in her career. And that didn't stop. Um, now she runs her own business back in New Mexico. Uh, the culture and the food of New Mexico is really important to our family. And she now has a line of salsas, sauces, dipping sauces, and they just introduced Santa Fe coffee. Um, and what's inspiring about that is through my mother's life, she's been faced with incredible challenges. And at the age of, age of 40, she followed this dream to make this her her career and she's been doing it for 17 years and finally it's paying off what were some of the values that she passed down to you i think number one hard work um i remember her saying uh do what you love and the money will follow but also doing it in a way that you can be proud of 
Um, I also think that she gave me a passion for um, connecting with other people in meaningful ways. Uh, a lot of people would call that networking, but my mother doesn't network. She knows people, she talks to people, and she can, creates connections with them. Um, and I think I've, I've gained that love of learning about people, um, what makes them tick, why they do what they do. And it's, it's, I think it's one of my, one of the qualities that I, I'm glad I picked up from my mother. It's interesting. You talk about building relationships versus networking and the definition of relationship is all about connection and, yeah. be, and being connected. If you look up relationship in the dictionary, it'll talk about being connected. And it's an interesting way to think about it because networking is connecting yeah. I'm not sure it's being connected. Right. Um, whereas relationships is being connected. So that's just something that teased out for me as you sort of started to describe her. You had mentioned that uh, high school, you know, you weren't necessarily <laughs> thriving uh, with with the fractions that your your mom was. Um, what what came for you after high school? What what came next for you? Um, that's when my life kind of went into the blender a bit. Um, I think in like junior, senior year of high school, I was dead set on being an engineer of sorts and I was really good at math. I was really good at, um, figuring things out. Uh, and I was on this path. I had done a, a introduction to engineering course over the summer between junior and senior year at the university of Washington. And I kind of thought that my future was written, like that I was required to go along this path. And I remember a conversation with my mother when she asked me, is this what you really want to do? And that was the first time it dawned on me that I had a choice, that I could choose to go to school and become an engineer. I could do something else. Um, and so I kind of put engineering on the back burner, uh, started to have a more social life um, than I had had prior and started doing, I don't know, got into a little bit of trouble, um, moved out, moved in with my best friends, slept in his parents, like um, kitchen nook, you know, the, the, the nook behind the kitchen where they have like a table, you can have brunch there. I remember having a cot and sleeping there. Um, and then, eventually moving back to, to New Mexico to live with my dad and go to uh, start university. So um, I enrolled in the University of New Mexico. I also, uh, before then, had a friend in high school that was a dancer. She um, did like recital type stuff and uh, did point work and ballet. And I remember that being really, really interesting. And it dawned on me then that one of the choices I could make is the choice to um, take a dance class and see what it was like. And so I started uh, taking dance, started doing like jazz and hip hop and ballet all at the same time at this tiny, tiny studio and also doing musical theater. And one of the first shows I did was seven brides for seven brothers it was the first professional production I had ever done. It's a musical that's kind of twisted. 
about that's a riff on the the tale of the Sabine women, where the Romans go into uh, a village and they, um, I believe, they kill all the men and they steal all the women to take home and be their wives. Uh, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is this bunch of mountain men that live up in the hills. They go down into the village to find wives, find these seven sisters and kidnap them and take them back up in the mountains. And it's a musical. I don't know. Kind of weird. But it was so much fun. And there was such a community around it. And I enjoyed the combination of um, physicality through the dancing, um, music through the singing, um, and also the intellectual pursuit of becoming a better artist. Um, what was going yeah. on for you with that, that you weren't getting from math and engineering and, and that path? I think it was two things looking back. I think one was the physicality. Um, I mean, I played a little bit of soccer, but I didn't really engage in, um, fitness or, or sports. And when I got into dance, there was an emphasis on, uh, being stronger, developing muscles. Um, I really enjoyed like partnering the girls and negotiating weight, balance, and momentum. Also lifting them and seeing like these crazy like lifts and twirls you could do in the air. So physicality was one thing. I think the second thing was, and this was my perception at the time. Since then, this perception has changed. But back then, it seemed to me that engineering math, there was an answer. Um, there was a formula, there was an answer. And when I got into the arts, there was this idea that there is no answer. There's unattainables. And you work towards an unattainable without looking towards a goal uh, or without achieving a goal. There is a goal, but you know, to be, be a perfect dancer is something that's probably unattainable. Um, having a perfect performance is probably unattainable. And that search for perfection was, um, was intriguing. How did you handle that search? <laughs> uh, early on, probably not in the best way. Um, I started doing as many shows as I could. I started dancing in as many places I could taking different classes, um, doing things from musical theater to ballet productions to, uh, jazz productions and eventually kind of transitioning my university experience to include dance. So I shifted my major and, 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 uh, was a dance major at the university of New Mexico. Um, and I, I say that not in the best way because looking back, it would have been more beneficial for me to stay on one path with one track rather than to jump around and, and do as many things as I did. Um, but the experience that I gained from working with so many different people was invaluable. And perfectionism, talk about how that plays a role in, in performing at a high level when it comes to dance. Perfectionism. That's such a big, that's such a big like concept, right? Um, The only way I know to do that is to like approach it anecdotally. I think I have, we all have those people that we look up to, those people that we think have attained a certain level that 
we use as examples or that we use as motivation or inspiration. And when I was younger and I had started dancing, those people existed, whether I was dancing next to them in a class or whether I went to a production and saw them perform professionally on stage. And back then, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, these people are so gifted. Um, Gifted in the sense that they were endowed with something that was unattainable for me. Uh, It was something I would never, that I could aspire to, but I would never attain. But I enjoyed it so much and I was passionate about it that I continued. Um, And then, so I I enjoyed going to class. it, It interested me. I enjoyed doing the productions. But one of the things that happened was um, at the University of New Mexico, I was introduced to two choreographers. Um, One of them was an instructor of mine, and another one was a choreographer who was uh, very, very famous. Um, And two pieces of choreography. One of those was called um, Before I Depart, and it was a choreographic approach to looking at... um, the children that lived in the Dresden concentration camp during world war two. And it was inspired by letters and poems and drawings that they had done that they saved from that concentration camp. And this choreographer was trying to look into the lives of these children and depict them on stage. And for me, being a part of that process and being allowed to give my own creative input, as to how these children might have felt and dealt with this in order to have an impact on the audience was transformative. And then on the flip, not on the flip side of that, but around the same, in the same path, I was introduced to a choreographer named Anthony Tudor, who did a piece called before I depart, which was about an Island that was hit by a tsunami or a wave And it washed all of the children from the little island away. And the parents were left to grieve. And so the ballet is just this long grieving process that you go through with each um, woman and man that was left to grieve for their children. And one, you look at kind of the journey that you have to go through to interpret these feelings, not only as actors do through facial expressions and, and characterization, but through physicality and movement very metaphorically. And these two pieces participating in these two pieces for me was the first entrance into the fact that dance as an art can do something positive and transformative socially. It's very cool. Um, we're going to get more into the power of dance and an art. Uh, but before we do, I just want to go back at you a little bit and get yeah. into the college version of you as a performer uh, when you're dancing. Yeah. The reason why I brought up perfectionism is uh, tomorrow I'm actually speaking to a bunch of dancers and musicians. So this really? is per- perfect timing for me. <laughs> That's and, awesome. Yeah. And, and I have a video that I'm going to show them from Beyonce. And, nice. uh, Beyonce fascinates me. I, I joke. I say Beyonce is like one of the philo- great philosophers of our time because yeah. if you really listen to how she sets her mind 
for both preparation and performance, it's remarkable. And um, I think a lot of people look at her and just say, oh, she's just gifted, right? She's gorgeous. She moves. She can sing. She's got it all. But if you uh, listen to her and, and actually watch some interviews with her, read about her, her preparation, she is maniacal and she is perfectionist. And the people that she works with even say like she's hard to work with because her attention to detail is so uh, great. And, um, but the thing that I love about Beyonce is she will do all of that perfectionism in her preparation, but the moment she gets on stage, she's not in her head, she's in her body and she's not trying to be perfect in that moment. She's adaptable and she goes with it. So the clip that I'll show these dancers and musicians is she talks about perfectionism and preparation, but then she says, and then I, I do all that so I can just let go and just be. And one of the things that I love about artists and actors and dancers is if it looks like you've rehearsed a million times, then you're not actually performing. Yeah. And so a great actor or a great dancer or a great musician, the beauty and the art in it is that it looks like they're improvising, even though they've already hit every, they know exactly where they're supposed to be. And I think like a lot of athletes, they put in so much work, but if you're robotic in the performance, it's not going to be your best. So I would love for you to just unpack everything that I'm talking about and just share what your mindset's like in preparation as a dancer and then your mindset when you're performing. Yeah. Um, so I completely like what you're saying and, and, and the example of Beyonce, I, it, it totally resonates with me and my thought process. Um, but it, it's not a thought process that developed like then. Um, I think then I was just reveling in, in the fact that I could take a ballet class or a jazz class and then I could go perform. And it was very um, amateurish. It was very, uh, you know, I don't think I, I had gained an appreciation for that level of detail, for that level of, of intensity in preparation. Um, and then a couple of years down the line, I had an opportunity to... Um, go to a, a almost a pre-professional ballet school in on the East coast. And I was introduced to my, one of my mentors who was a, a Russian trained ballet dancer who uh, trained at one of the premier schools in Russia. And he introduced me to the pedagogical study of classical ballet and this method, methodological curriculum that surrounds that level of uh, detail, that level of perfectionism, that level of athletic uh, and physical investigation of the human body. So that the preparation is exactly what you're talking about. The preparation is so intense so that you, and the theory of it is exactly that. So that when you get on stage, you're not thinking of the preparation. You're not thinking of the details. You're not thinking of all the things you already worked on time and time again in the studio on stage. You can just let it go. And a little adage or example of that is when we were getting ready for what's called a variation. So um, a variation is about a two to three minute solo, one to three minute solo that's done by either a female or a male, totally alone on stage. And it's designed to be, because it is a solo, 
one of the most explosive and expressive and dynamic um, dances in what would be like a two and a half hour ballet, right? And when we were getting taught it, when we were rehearsing it and preparing for stage, my mentor would tell me that I had to be able to do it three times in succession well to do it once well on stage. Um, and it, it's a it's a little example of, of just how much work we put into a minute, two minutes, um, very much like sports, you know, like a whole football game is what, 11 minutes of actual action. Yeah, very little. And, and golf the same way, like golf, yeah. you know, they play for four and a half, five hours and actually over the ball is, is very minimal. The amazing <laughs> thing for me though is like what I find in my experience in my practice is that where a lot of people end up getting uh, struggling with when it comes to the performance is that they bring that preparation perfectionism into their performance yeah. and they're not letting go. And now they aren't recovering from mistakes and they are in their head. And um, so that polarity is so fascinating to me. And it's probably what I'm interested in most is uh, the shift that needs to take place in order to get great. You have to have some perfectionism. And I think our society these days is really saying, don't try to be perfect. Don't worry about being perfect. And I would argue every pro athlete that I've ever worked with, one of the first things they'll tell me is I'm a perfectionist. And so I understand that. And they're saying I need to be perfectionist in every detail, my footwork, everything I need to do. It has to be exactly right. But what gets lost is they don't also practice then performing, right? So uh, there's preparation, which is that perfectionist mind. Then there's practicing actually performance, which is, you know, all right, you fell. Now what are you going to do? And so I'm not too familiar with dance, although I'm really intrigued by it, which is one of the reasons we're talking today. Um, (laughs) But you can really see it in the Olympics, in gymnastics, which requires a lot of dance. And one of the most fascinating elements when I watch the Olympics is the U.S. gymnasts and the Chinese gymnasts. And if you watch them, the U.S. gymnasts, you can tell they're really well trained. A lot of them are trained by former Russian, um, you know, coaches. And but the difference that I find between a lot of the Americans and the Chinese is that the Americans let go. They smile. They put on a show. They perform. And you see these Chinese girls who are like 13, 14, these tiny girls, and they can do everything. But they often don't perform up to their standards because they're still in that preparation mindset of getting everything perfect. Um, so I'm curious for you, was there a time in your career where you learned how to perform? I think, yeah. But I unfortunately, I don't think it was until a lot later in life. I think, you know, on stage when I was younger and when I was, I was performing, I remember being so inundated with the steps and the more complicated steps or, or the more dynamic steps. And to give you an example, uh, pirouette, right. Is, is a turn on one leg and it can be done with the other leg, like bent at 90 degrees to the, to the knee, or it can be out um, to the side straight and pointed so that it's aesthetically parallel with the floor. Um, usually when you're doing a pirouette on stage, it's multiple pirouettes. So you're doing one, two, three, four revolutions. And 
as an example, you know, I can give you, I can give you two or three instances where I was on stage and I was, I was tasked with all of this choreography, which is steps, jumps, traveling across the floor. And then there was like one pirouette or two pirouettes. And the whole time my mind was on that. Right. And in retrospect, that's not where it should have been. Like you said, you know, if the preparation, if the preparation was done, then that pirouette should have just been part of everything else. And I should have been able to concentrate on the choreography itself. Um, It wasn't until I think later that I was developing my own work and I was, I was performing at a, at a later stage. And then I understood the introduction of risk and chance and, and pushing yourself to perform and not to deliver the perfect performance, right? Detail wise and hit the perfect pirouette, but to find what they call flow and make the performance happen and make something transformative happen on stage and then let it let it be that the preparation's done you're creating on stage and you're taking risks and you're letting the risks and and the confidence in the foundational aspects of what you've already done allow the artistry, the creativity, and the surprises to happen on stage. You've used the word transformative a couple of times now. Talk about how you leverage dance to, to transform. I think there's two layers. I think <clears throat> the two layers that come to mind are, first of all, when you're looking at <clears throat> classical work, uh, something I was trained in, and not only the transformation of the performer, but the transformation of the audience, right? So as a performer in a classical work, what we're trying to do, and the best way to do that, like the best way to give you an example is classical piano or classical orchestra. We're trying to deliver something that has hundreds of years of history wrapped into it in a way that we can deliver our own interpretation while being true to the creative intent and also connecting with the audience in a way that they can connect with the work. So what you're, what we're looking for as dancers performing a classical work to the audience is, is that moment when the audience can forget that they're watching a performance, that they're watching steps, that they're watching a dance, that they can make the, make the uh, distinction between the music and the sets and the steps and the choreography to they're immersed in a performance that they are enjoying, that they are thinking about, that they are partaking um, an experience. So I think when you're looking at classical work, that's, that's kind of what you're, what you're looking at is the, the performer, transforming in a way that they can engage the audience in the work that I'm doing. I think we're trying to go a step further in finding a topic within the choreography that the audience can tangibly connect with. And 
they can, that can cause a transformation in the way they think, in the way they act, um, or in the things that they do. So we're going to get into m- more of what you're up to now. Uh, we're going to have to take a couple steps before we get there. But the one thing that I was thinking about is you were talking about flow earlier. And for those that aren't familiar with flow, it's it's that optimal state. Some call it the zone. Uh, there's really cool research on it by a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, uh, and he wrote a book called Flow. Um, and I don't know the science behind this. I'm curious about it, and I'll look it up. But I wonder if flow can be transferred. And uh, you sort of interesting, yeah. Like you brought this up in my mind, and I never thought about it before. But you know, you talked about the goal of a performer is to get into that optimal state and get into that flow. And you think about what is that flow? It usually is things te- tend to slow down. We're in the present moment. We're not worried about judgment. Um, there are these qualities of flow. And I wonder if that is also the feeling or the state at which the audience is at when they're watching flow. Because if you think about whenever you're in the crowd and you're watching an amazing performance, you're in awe. And you're just there. And I know I've studied all before. All has a lot of the same tendencies of flow. And so, yeah, all is time tends to slow down. We're in the present moment. Um, We are just in awe, right? Like we are just taking it all in without, without necessarily judgment. We're just experiencing it. And so you can actually see when people are experiencing awe. Jaw drops. You can notice it. There are tangible reactions to awe. So I'm, I'm doing a whole bunch of, uh, gymnastics in my head right now, as far as like, can flow be transferred connection between flow and awe, an audience that's in awe. Are they also experiencing flow? And I think they do. And I think that's one of the reasons why our society loves art and our society loves sport. Uh, I know for me, like I love witnessing uh, flow. And when that person yeah. is just in that state of genius or their optimal potential. And so that never really, I never thought about it. A great performer, can they actually get an audience to be in flow? That's a cool I, thought. You know, I, I'm going to add a nugget to that. So we did a performance at the Bronx VA uh, Veterans Hospital in New York. And one of the nurse, one of the doctors came up to us afterwards and he said, you know, the, the patients that are in wheelchairs, um, this is so good for them because watching dancers on stage actually allows the same neurotransmitters to fire in the brain as if they were dancing themselves. And so to kind of piggyback on what you just said about flow, wouldn't it be cool if that's what's happening, right? Like these neurotransmitters are finding a way to sync and they're finding a way to like groove or gracefully move and, and cause that same kind of sensation that flow brings in somebody who's just experiencing it. I love it. And visualization is also the science around it. The neuroscience around visualization, same thing. We visualize something. The mind doesn't know that we're not actually doing it, even though we're imagining it. So man, there's like a book here, I think uh, that you can write one day. That's and I so can cool. Um, but <laughs> You just brought up the VA. So um, where I would love to transition is to find out about your desire and willingness to join the military. And so, you know, maybe I'm ignorant to this, but I would imagine there aren't that many people that transition. And if I missed a step in between, feel free to fill in the gaps. I don't know too many people that transition from being a dancer into 
going and, and signing up to, to serve our military. So walk me through the thought process and the mindset that led to that decision. Yeah, it's a huge, to- a huge topic. I mean, it, in the outset, I think at the time I was in my life, I was questioning a lot of things. I was questioning what I wanted to do, um, the impact I wanted to have on the world, um, what I was doing currently, which was, you know, working uh, an extra job to supplement the 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 little paid gigs I was getting and the freelance dancing that I was doing. Um, and then the seemingly frivolousness of the choreography I was doing, you know, there wasn't a lot of like dance for good or social impact or, you know, people weren't talking about this, that dance could actually have another purpose rather than just going and entertaining people. And that's what I felt I was doing. I felt I was trying to produce a product and, and uh, practice and perform to produce a product that was consumed by an audience. And for me, everything around that was causing some conflict in my mind. And so I was wondering how I could make a career change or how I could do something completely different than doing uh, the performing arts. And all my life, I had these little like touch points with uh, veterans and with Marines. And, you know, my grandfather served in the Korean War, was very influential in my life. Uh, one of my, a uh, couple of my uncles served in the Navy and in the Air Force. And then, you know, I had a, a friend growing up who joined the Marines. I had a soccer coach who was a Marine. And I just, I think this ethos that most of the services and most of the branches either awaken, embolden, or strengthen within a person rubbed off on me and made an impression. And so I remember walking into the Marine recruiter's office and he does what every Marine recruiter does. You know, he's like pulling out those little tiles with the words on them. And he's like, what's important to you? Adventure, travel, money, blah, 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 blah. And I just looked at him and I remember saying, uh, you know, you can, you can save the speech because, uh, I want to help people and I want to join the Marine Corps so that I can be able to do that. And I joined the military and, uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. Is this pre nine 11 or post nine 11? This is pre nine 11. So what, what, what year was it? 2000. This so- was like summer of the spring of 2000. Okay. How does nine 11 play a, a role if at all in, in your journey? Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think I brought a lot of the, <laughs> of the challenging qualities of being an artist into the Marine Corps, uh, some impetuousness, some, um, headstrongness, some um, individualistic qualities that don't mesh well within the Marines. And so I remember my first few years struggling to find a foothold and, and struggling to make a difference and, and contribute positively to the unit I was with. And, you know, and then I remember 9-11 happened 
And I remember all the Marines just advocating to be able to go and do something and to respond to the great tragedy that um, just took place. And we were, we, we started training almost uh, a couple of months after to be deployed to go. There was a ton of rumors um, of where we were going to go. We were either going to go to Egypt and supplement a force there, or we're going to go to Afghanistan and actively participate in what was going on, or we we're going to be a backup force to kind of respond to something else that was going on. Um, and that was in 2001, and we didn't end up going anywhere. And I think a lot of the guys felt slighted that we weren't able to contribute to the cause. Um, so we just kept training. And it wasn't until 2005 that we got the green light that we were actually going to Iraq and we were going to participate in some of the operations that were going on there. What were the similarities or differences between training for dance and performing in dance compared to training uh, in the military and then, and then going to Iraq? I think, you know, the similarities that everyone touches on, I think the physicality was similar. Um, I think the approach to it, um, the hierarchical structure, how, you know, I had a, a ballet teacher that was Russian trained that used to yell at me and I went into the military and had a drill instructor that used to yell at me and um, we were pushed to our limits, both mentally and physically. So, you know, on the surface, these, these similarities are there. I think I was amazed in the Marine Corps when we, when I heard the word rehearsal and we used to rehearse operations and, um, in the military, I think the, the differences are, is there's a different outcome, right? You're still getting ready to perform and perform at your best, but you know, you're either doing it um, to eliminate a threat or to uh, some other military outcome that you wouldn't find in the performing arts world. The other thing I was just curious about is there is a softness that needs to take place in the ballet world. There, I mean, there is a gracefulness, and if I'm yeah. using the wrong words, you know, you can correct me, but... Yeah, I'm just, um, there, you know, I think of ballet dancer, military, the juxtaposition there is fascinating. So I'd also love to hear you talk about that, um, and, and how that mapped onto each other. Yeah. You know, uh, the other day <laughs> my wife was getting ready to leave, um, to go get on with her day and she was rushing around and she had to like throw some stuff together and. Um, she had to do something really quickly in order to be able to leave the house. And I remember looking at her and going smooth, is, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And she's like, what did you just say? I was like, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. She's like, what is that? And I was like, that's the thing we learned in the Marine Corps that, you know, if, if your anxiety builds up and you're trying to do something and you're just letting that adrenaline take over and you're letting you know, you're just trying to do it quickly and everything's moving quickly. You're probably going to waste some time because you're going to do it wrong or something's going to go wrong. But if you just concentrate on 
calming your nerves, doing something slow, it'll get faster. And that outcome eventually will be faster than the anxious, quick one that you were attempting in the first place. So I think you're right. I think there is a gracefulness to, you know, being a warrior, being a soldier, being a Marine. Um, You know, when we were doing things, the best way to do it was to practice over and over and over until there was a gracefulness to, you know, rushing in a, a position or um, choreographing the way Humvees were moving throughout a formation or, you know, how we could disassemble, assemble a, a machine gun and, and load the rounds in. Um, it's what we were taught that, you know, gracefulness just makes you faster. The question that I'm sure you get a lot is what, what is your platoon? Like what, what's the reaction? I mean, I can't think of a more masculine. Yeah. And and it's not like, look, we've had on other military people, but the Marines also have a reputation. Um, there was a movie called Jarhead, right? Like, like, so, uh, when I think of Marines, once again, I don't think of, uh, a dancer. What was the reaction of others when you, when you told them, Hey, yeah, this is my background. You know, when I was in boot camp, um, I had kind of an adverse reaction that made me stuff that information real deep down, not, not divulge it. Um, I was in boot camp, and one of uh, the girls I was seeing at the time sent me a photo album of, of pictures of us. And, you know, it was pictures of us on holiday. It was pictures of us dancing. And I was looking at it in the squad bay during one of our breaks, and two of the Marines looked over my shoulder, and they thought that was you know, Hey, you dance. Wow. That's really cool. You know? And then one Marine just saw it and never, never talked to me again. Mm. And you know what? 20 some odd years later, it could have been for any reason, but I chalked it up to the fact that he found out I was a dancer and he didn't want to be part of that. So I took that information and I shut it up. I didn't tell a soul for years um, that I was a performing artist, that I danced, uh, that I still had an interest to, you know, do it in some way. Um, and it wasn't until Fallujah that I started working really closely with some of my guys and started talking about it. And I started very, very safe and very, um, vanilla by saying, you know, I, I, I perform in plays, you know, cause plays are, you could perform in play. Um, and then I kind of would go further when I figured out that, you know, after the test didn't go horribly wrong, I, I went a little further and told them, you know, well, I performed in Broadway, you know, so I like sang and danced a little bit. And, and then when, the, then when that test didn't go horribly wrong, then we started talking about like, you know, performing and dancing and studying ballet. And, you know, a couple of the guys I talked about this at length and, and this little idea I had to come back and from war and to kind of try to depict this experience, um, through choreography. And, uh, you know, if you could think of the stereotypical Marine, um, which 
in my mind is that guy who's like, you know, 240, probably five, nine made a muscle. Um, this was my roommate in Fallujah. Uh, just like his nickname is body, uh, just cause he's huge and muscular. And, and, uh, after I told, after we talked about this for a while, he looks at me and he's like, you know, we should write this down because we should really do this when we get back. And, and he sure enough came with a pen and a pad and we started taking notes and fast forward a couple of years, he was on stage with me in New York city and, you know, performing this work that we dreamed up in a dusty war zone and in Iraq. What did you learn about yourself when you were sort of, I'm going to use the term coming out. Cause it almost sounds like it's like, yeah, I have this secret and, you know, I'm not sure I should say anything and all right, I'm just going to slowly tell a few people and this, that, and the other. Uh, what did you learn about yourself when you started to share uh, what one of your passions was? I learned I wasn't giving other people the credit that they deserved. Um, you know, I thought I was this enigma. I thought I was this enigma that was going to war that had these artistic sensibilities that would have this really hard time um, being in combat operations and thinking about the humanity behind it, um, that I was the only one with these artistic sensibilities that, you know, thought about drawing when I was out there, that thought about music. Um, and I really didn't give the guys that were with me the credit of one being open to that kind of stuff to being a part of that kind of stuff and being interested in that kind of stuff. And, and three being human, you know, I was, I was proved wrong in every aspect. Um, you know, just on the surface there, a lot of the guys have come to shows they've, um, participated positively in, in the choreography that's gone on since then, whether it's been by, actively performing with us coming to see the shows or participating in a way that, you know, helps us develop ideas or flesh out choreography. Um, two, a, you know, a lot of the guys love music. A lot of the guys would draw or paint. Um, there was another dancer that served in the same unit that I was in, 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 in Iraq that I, I buddies with now. Um, and three, it, it was amazing to go out on patrol and operations with a bunch of Marines that their first goal was to positively contribute to the place that they were serving in. And, you know, that went as small as handing out food and water to, you know, the kids that would rush the Humvees every morning or to developing like a neighborhood watch type program where, the villagers could actually let us know if something was, was going awry in the village so we could respond. So you write down on a piece of paper with your roommate, we're going to call him body. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you'll appreciate that. Yeah, no one's ever called me that, but that's, that's nice to know. Um, so you guys developed this, this plan. Give us some more insight into what this is all about and how you make it come uh, into fruition and, and make it into a, a reality. Yeah, you know, it, it, I think the plan that that Body and I talked about in in Fallujah was like this autobiographical 
um, depiction of this Marine that starts as a, starts out as a dancer, joins the military, goes off to war and then come, you know, and then just yearns to come home. When we did come home, um, responsibility and, and, and what I thought I should do after war, uh, took center stage, if you will, rather than the performing arts. Um, my grandfather, you know, I looked to his example after the Korean war and when he got back, he married my grandmother straight away, got a job at the post office, a really secure, good job and settled down and raised his family. And when I got back, I was like, that's, that's what people do. Like that's responsibility is, you know, settling down and, and making a go at, at being a father, being a, uh, a breadwinner. And so I gave that the best shot I could. Um, I got a really good job with a great company, uh, settled down with my girlfriend a little bit more. Um, and I, I started to do those things that I thought everybody did or everybody should do. And it drove me a little nuts. Um, I, I had problems with anger. I had problems with disconnecting from like the Marine I was to be the civilian I was. Um, I missed being around people with the same mindset. Um, you know, I, I was in a work environment and I was yelling at my supervisor because I thought that's how the, that's the way that you pushed ideas. And I thought that was the way that you got things done. And, and he just said, wow, you really hate me, don't you? <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't hate you. I think you're a great guy. Uh, you know, and I, I, I was like, I got to tone this down somehow. And it was when my girlfriend, you know, sat me down and she was like, people are afraid of you. And that was probably the best worst thing I could have ever heard. Because one, the best thing because it created change in my mindset and the worst, because I did not want to be viewed as that kind of person. And I didn't see myself as that kind of person who could make people afraid of me. Um, and so we decided that I would go back into art as a way to kind of reconnect. And, and for me, it was this way to tell, the world about all these experiences that I had had and that my guys had had overseas. Um, unbeknownst to me, everyone else's plan was for me to get better and for me to kind of turn the corner and come home. So we started out by making body and my idea come to reality and choreograph this piece. That was our first kind of venture um, into just showing people what patrol was like in Iraq and trying to bring the audience to this, this experience. Um, it started with two Marines patrolling around the audience with prop M 16, just to scare the audience a little bit. And then to go up on stage and to contrast this like Marine, um, patrolling physical aesthetic with the physical aesthetic of a ballerina coming on stage and dancing and then dancing with the Marine and then seeing that, um, play out on stage and then the two of them dancing together, the roughness of the Marine against the softness of the ballerina and 
and there was a shaky little narrative, you know, where he gets hurt in the middle of it and then is kind of has a struggle with life and death and which way he's going to go. But I think what was interesting is that we were starting to take this subject matter into theaters alongside modern dance companies, ballet companies in New York City and present this work as a true artistic endeavor in order to start conversations about war, about the military, about veterans coming home and about the people that are affected by war. How has your production impacted you? How have you learned and, and grown for yourself? Uh, you mentioned something, you kind of slid it in there. It was like, unbeknownst to me, they wanted me to just get better and have me focus on this. So how have you gotten better? Share, share how this has helped transform you as you're trying to transform others. I think that the shortest answer to that question is now it surprises people that get to know me as a person before they hear I was ever in the military because they are like, wow, I don't see you as a Marine. Um, I think it's, it's incredibly amazing what military training does. Um, it, it creates almost a whole new person, a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of acting. And it took the performing arts to show me another path of um, performing at a high level again without resorting to those things I had learned in the military um, in order to do that. But I think that's just the easy answer. I think the larger answer and the answer that I had struggled with for a very long time was realizing who I am as a person and realizing what my calling and what I feel I can contribute to this world is. Um, it took me a lot of years to self-identify as an artist. I don't think I self-identified as an artist until last year, like January of 2017, um, and really leaned into it. Up until then, I was like somebody who was choreographing, dancer, I was kind of a Marine, and you know, trying to make all of these things make sense together. And working on this and seeing the importance of this work and seeing what this work does um, and what this work can do down the line has made me accept and self-identify as an artist. Uh, it's, you took the question right out under me, which is what is your identity? And it sounds like you really do identify as an artist today when that's not something you necessarily would have identified with years ago. One thing I'm curious about is the military is, like you said, this amazing training machine. And I know they're slow to evolve, but there is evolvement that takes place in the military. Yeah. Um, and I've had other military members come on and I've, I've talked with a lot of military people because just like to me, dance is uh, and arts is something that if I want to work in sports, I, I want to be really trying to learn from 
artists and dancers because I think you can take elements from there and bring it into sport. For example, we play instruments. You're in a play as an actor and you play sports. And I think a lot of times performers don't play and they run into trouble when they don't play. Um, but same with the military. And I, obviously in sports, they use military analogies all the time. And in the military, they often use sport analogies. But from a training standpoint, one of the things that still is not clear for me that I would love to get your perspective on is what would you do differently, uh, if anything at all, when it comes to uh, the training process that the military puts people through? That's such a tough question. Um, and it's only a tough question is because it took me a lot of years. No, 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 no. I guess you're right. There is an answer to that question. Um, I think one of the things I regret um, in my service as a Marine is not leaning into it more and not being a better Marine. Um, I think when I was in it, it was easy to accomplish what I was set out to accomplish. And it was easy to check, tick the boxes, if you will. There was a certain things you, there was a certain amount of things you had to accomplish to do X, Y, and Z. I could tick those boxes. No big deal. Um, real quick, just to jump in. It yeah. reminds me of engineering as you described engineering earlier. <laughs> it's like, okay, there's an answer. If I do X, Y, and Z, I'll come up with the answer. Um, and then you said, but I went into art because yeah. there wasn't any. So just a little side note. And then uh, you are so good at pulling back the onion, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> I, I, you just have a lot of layers there, but yeah. yeah so yeah, just, sorry. I, I had to cut you off and interject yeah. that, but yeah, go into, um, yeah, you know, what what you think they do really well, and and what maybe you would do differently, if anything yeah. at all. And and I don't, I definitely don't have the answer because I've never served and I've never been in the trenches with people that have to protect me, and it's a matter of life and death. So that's where yeah. the what I do and and the world of sports, there's a distinct difference between that and you know being in the trenches. So yeah. um, I don't have an answer here. So I'm I to me, I just want to collect data because of my curiosity. I think, you know, along those lines, the Marine Corps values leadership. The Marine Corps values leadership so much so that everyone is tasked to be a leader at no matter what level they are in. You're always looking for a, a, an opportunity to lead, um, and you're always looking to improve as a leader. And, you know... I think when I was in the Marine Corps, I looked at that leadership as a given that if I acted a certain way, that if I followed the 22 leadership traits, um, that, and I epitomized, you know, the, the leadership directives that I would be a good leader, you know, and, and yet unbeknownst to me, there was still this bit of individualism that underpinned the way I would operate because it was always about me becoming a better leader, me doing a good job, me doing my tasks as quickly as I could do them. But then looking back, I didn't broaden that view to how that impacted everyone else. Right. Um, I don't think it was 
until Fallujah that I realized that it wasn't about me, that leadership was not about me at all, that leadership was about everyone around me. And most importantly, it was the guys under me. And it was making sure that they were okay, making sure they had everything they needed, make sure they knew I could be a resource and an advocate for them and an example. And looking back, the one thing I would change was I would have developed that mindset a lot earlier so that I could have been a better leader then and I could have become a better leader now. Is that a you problem or is that a training problem? That is a me problem. Yeah. You know, um, the Marine Corps, for all of its craziness and, and, and the, the way, way out there things that we did, you know, there is a lot of good to find in the Marine Corps. Um, there were a lot of mentors that I could have uh, leaned on that will probably actually arguably tell you I was a good leader. Um, I just bumped into one in London. He, uh, was holidaying with, uh, some friends and he painted a picture of me as a, as a very good leader, uh, with my men. And, uh, I, I, I long for the day when we can have a longer discussion and kind of flush that out a bit. But, um, I think, you know, the Marine Corps did provide the opportunities to, uh, an exposure to those leaders that were the, the shining example of what, what you could be, you know, we had a gunnery sergeant that came in that his mantra was do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That was the only qualification on why to do the right thing. And, you know, that little added added says so much as to how, how we could be as people, you know, instead of qualifying things of like, I'm doing this because, or I'm doing this because, or I'm doing this because, excuse, excuse, excuse. What's plain and simple is, you know, I'm doing this because it's the, it's the right thing to do. Is there anything as you look back on your training to become a dancer and the training to become a Marine that you would do differently if you were in charge? <laughs> That's a hard one. <laughs> And I think um, you probably see this is the the difficulty within, you know, um, looking at the organization and looking at the people, you know what I mean? Like that, that, that conflict that exists between doing good for the organization and doing good for the people in the organization. And, so the, the reason I bring that up is because when you ask that question, I'm like, yeah, there's all kinds of things I would change, right? But then you have that gift of looking at it from an organizational perspective and thinking, yeah, but if those changes were made, would the organization survive? It's, it's, a, it's a tough call. So interesting. Um, you mentioned having anxiety before. Um, and you mentioned a mantra, uh, that, you know, has been passed down to you. Are there any tools, techniques, mantras that you use in your life on a daily basis that help guide you, uh, in being a productive and, and good human being? Uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's two. Um, the first thing is something that I think I learned from the Marine Corps, um, 
which was, uh, in order to, in order to keep moving, right. You have to move decisively, uh, in ways that make you afraid, uh, decisively, aggressively, and, um, committed into, into directions that make you afraid. I think it's something that I started to work on early on, um, especially in starting the dance company. Um, because there, there always seemed to be, and I'm going to oversimplify it and, and this is just for purposes of illustration. There always seems to be like the easy road and the road that is risky enough to make you uncomfortable. And I noticed a pattern that when I went the easy road, like nothing really happened. But if I went in that way that like was a little bit risky or was really risky or that I felt some sort of anxiety or trepidation before I did it, usually something incredible would happen, you know? And if that incredible thing was failing and learning, that was still incredible. Um, and so I believe that in order to make that successful, the decision has to be clear and you have to be committed and you have to take initiative into moving into that direction that makes you afraid in order to really make an impact and usually a positive impact. So that's one. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) And then the second one is, uh, as simple as just get started. I think, you know, I read a lot of stuff on productivity, a lot of stuff about discipline. I think a lot of people talk about getting into the military because they want to find discipline. Um, the easiest point of discipline for me is just one show up to get started. Um, and those two, uh, little adids that I have, have provided me with so much, so many opportunities, so many connections. And, and you're in London right now. Uh, tell people about what you're up to there. And I'm sure there's some risks moving to, to another country. Um, and, uh, just talk about what that experience has been like for you. London has been incredible. Um, a a couple of years ago, we got a phone call from a a theater here that wanted us to come and choreograph a a ballet about the war. And so, uh, I use that as an inspiration to apply for a Fulbright, uh, grant to come and one research this new piece of choreography that uh, I was creating and two to get my master's of fine arts. Um, and so I've been here a year studying, researching, performing, volunteering. Um, and to break that down a little bit, what I'm doing is, uh, so part of my program for my master's of fine arts is to investigate what I'm already doing and to make it better, which has been incredible. Um, it's opened up so many new ways of thinking for me. It's opened up so many new ways of working. Uh, we were talking about the preparation and performance on stage. And one of the things I've been looking at is forcing risk on stage by taking out the rehearsal and performative aspects of the preparation. Mm. Um, what does that look like? <laughs> uh, so I'll give you a quick example. 
So one of the things I was looking at is um, creating a structure on stage, a certain number of tasks that the dancers and performers had to accomplish um, in the performance. And I knew I had dancers, so I already could assume that they were physically ready for this, that they could follow instructions, that they could kinesthetically duplicate the things I wanted them to duplicate. And then having a few run-throughs of what this structure looked like. So um, to give you an example, when they started, they had to create a phrase that was kind of improvisational for them. So they're moving through movement that they had either created on the moment or that they were that they had already known. And then they were to break that and go into something else, like crawling on the floor and rolling forward or something. Then they were to break with that and go to a period of stillness. And then they were to break with that and go into um, another phrase where they were interacting with one another. The risk comes in, one, the improvisational aspect of it. A lot of it is made up on the, in the moment, so there's very little chance for rehearsal. Two, in giving the dancers the power to change it within the moment. So they could change it giving a, given a set of commands to make the duration of it shorter or longer. Um, and three, giving them agency in how they interpreted this, how they presented it, how they interacted with one another. Um, it, was a, it was a great experiment that I'm continuing to build on because I think um, it's a very good representation of life. Super cool. Uh, choreography. Um, you've mentioned, you know, drill sergeant, uh, a technical, you know, dance coach, dance instructor. What does a great choreographer do? What, what makes a great choreographer? Um, I think there's, there's two things. I think one is to be able to create something epic. Um, and by epic, I mean something that's interesting to engage with, um, is visually striking in some way that causes a reaction of sorts and maybe approaches that flow state that we were talking about. Um, which is great. I think I'll tick like two of those boxes as I go along. Um, but I think the one thing that I'm looking for personally is as a choreographer, um, the opportunity to bring the audience to a world that we create choreographically. So, going beyond just choreographing a bunch of steps, but choreographing the whole experience for an audience that makes them remark. Um, whether that is in their mind and they're, and they're having this conversation with themselves about what's going on, whether they take that home and they have a conversation with something else uh, or with somebody else, um, whether they feel inclined to comment uh, through a review or, or, or an opinion, or whether that makes them participate in something. Um, 
that is something I believe if I can find that nugget that I will have accomplished what I've set out to accomplish. And as you describe all that, what do you feel and where do you feel it? Uh, um, I don't know if this is the answer you're expecting. If it's not, I can clarify. There is no answer. Um, <laughs> so I had a mentor a couple of years ago that, you know, I was struggling with the, 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 the job that I had and she knew I was struggling and, and she told me, you know, you need to find that one thing that gives you energy, that, that one thing that doesn't take energy from you, but that gives you energy that you are pumped up, like doing, saying, talking about. So I use that as an example, you know, as I talk about this, I can feel like that adrenaline running through my body and my hands are kind of shaking and I'm finding it hard to articulate because the words want to come out faster than my mouth can actually like shape them and, and propel them forward. Um, that's where I feel it. Uh, the reason I asked is I could tell, and you oh. were extremely <laughs> articulate, epic remark. The words you used were very specific, very clean and very clear. And I could tell just from your body uh, you were excited to talk about choreography. So that I think is a great place for us to start winding down. Um, what I'd love to do is give you a platform so that people can find out about the great work that your studio is doing uh, and also ways in which they can learn more about you and, and the research you're doing and what you're studying. So I'm just going to give you a megaphone and a platform to promote anything that is connected to you that you feel like uh, the world should know about. Yeah. I, isn't it hard to promote yourself? Um, <laughs> That's why I get other people on my podcast so that they I can, can promote themselves. What I can tell you about is uh, a couple of things I d I've done recently that I'm really, really proud of and that you can probably find online. Um, so the most recent thing I've done is I had the opportunity to uh, choreograph a piece for the U.S. Embassy here in London. Uh, the new U.S. Embassy, they just opened it, I think, in September or January of uh this past year and it's one of the first uh receptions that they've had there with this many people and with an actual production that's went on and i was able to put that together uh with some of my colleagues from my uni here in london and um the u.s ambassador actually tweeted it uh out of his little uh tweet machine which I'm really proud of. You could probably search for that tweet. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, here in London, I've premiered a new work in progress that if you Google my name, Roman Baca work in progress, you can see uh, one, a talk I give explaining it. And then you can see the actual work as it was produced in the theater here. Um, we're looking at developing that work and premiering it at uh, King's College London in their war studies department in November. And then two of the things to keep an eye on. One, we're working on a, a short documentary with a um, with an organization that's interested in bringing our story out bigger and bolder. Um, they're doing a dance film slash documentary, which you can go to our website, uh, exit12danceco.org, and just Keep looking at that. It'll probably be released sometime in November and we'll link to the platform they release it on so you can take a look at that. Uh, 
and then just have a peruse around Exit 12, see all of the work that we do producing shows about the military experience, working with veterans in workshops, and then connecting veterans to community because that's how we make our community stronger. Awesome. And I believe Exit 12 also has a Twitter handle at Exit 12 Dance Co. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well. And Roman, since you mentioned uh, self-promotion and the struggles, uh, I've had a producer who always tells me at the end of my podcast, I have to say my Twitter handle, which is at Brian Levinson. Uh, I'll do it again at Brian Levinson and then uh, Instagram intentional underscore performers. And uh, so people can certainly follow me there. But Roman, I think we peeled back some of the onion uh, and find out, found out who you are. I think we could probably go for another hour and a half, um, but I respect your time uh, too much to do that. I just want to thank you for sharing. I want to thank you for your service. And I want to thank you for all of the incredible work that you're doing. It's so unique. It's so different. It's so refreshing. It's so authentic to you. Uh, so thank you for your vulnerability and willingness to put yourself out there and to help others put themselves out there. And I, I truly believe you're helping to heal the world and make the world a better place. And I go back to uh, that time when you went in and, and talked to the Marine, the recruit, and you just said, I just want to help people. And I go back to the part where you said about your mom said, you know, you don't have to do anything, do what you love. And, and, you know, you won't, it won't be work. And, uh, so kudos to you for finding your passion and, and to doing it at a really high level and, um, to continuing to produce and, and put out quality, but also transformational and inspiring work. So, so thank you for everything that you continue to do as well. Brian, thank you for this. Um, it's been incredibly motivating and inspiring for you to present me as an intentional performer. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take this motivation and, and do something positive with it. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. But I think the one thing that I'm looking for personally is... As a choreographer, um, the opportunity to bring the audience to a world that we create choreographically. So going beyond just choreographing a bunch of steps, but choreographing the whole experience for an audience that makes them remark. Um, whether that is in their mind and their and their having this conversation with themselves about what's going on, whether they take that home and they have a conversation with something else uh, or with somebody else, um, whether they feel inclined to comment uh, through a review or, or, or an opinion, or whether that makes them participate in something. Um, that is something I believe if I can find that nugget, that I will have accomplished what I've set out to accomplish. 